It is good to be with you again. I always enjoy the opportunities to come and to worship with you and the opportunity to get to know uh, some of you a little bit more, more than just faces and put names to faces and uh, the privilege of serving you by the preaching of God's word. So as, as we consider that and as we've prayed for that, uh, would you turn in your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 3. The focus of our, our time this morning will be Philippians 3, 1 through 11 as we consider the surpassing worth of Christ. As you turn there, would you join in praying with me and asking God for his help as we hear his word and pray for the fruit that he alone can bring. Father, as sojourners and as pilgrims, Lord, our great anticipation, our great hope this morning is seeing Christ seeing him and rejoicing in our resurrected bodies, free from all the corrupting influences of sin. Lord, until that day, our great need is to see Christ. So we ask for your help. We ask this morning that we would see him through your own word, that we would hear it and receive it by faith. And Lord, that we would be those who are trusting in your work, to shape us, to conform us to his image. And so, Father, ultimately what we're praying for is the ministry and the work of your own spirit. Lord, what we're promised, what you've given to us is that you would be faithful to your word, that it would not fail to bring the fruit that you have ordained, that the fruit that you've ordained and the work that you have purposed within us Lord, surely will come to pass, and so we are praying as your people this morning that by your own means, which is your own word, you would accomplish that work and you would bear that fruit in our lives, that Christ may be seen in us and that he may receive all the glory and all the praise and all the accolades, for it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, you can typically tell what people care about by what they talk about. Stick around with somebody long enough and eventually you'll get to the heart of what's really on their heart. And when they begin to speak passionately and depending upon who there are, maybe extra hand movements going along with that, you really get to the heart of the matter and what they most care about. And so as you come to Philippians 3 and you hear Paul's words and you hear Paul begin to speak about people as dogs, as evildoers, as mutilators of the flesh, I believe we've struck a nerve. I believe we've come to some subject matter that most certainly matters to Paul. If he was of the type, I imagine him as he's dictating here by the power of the Holy Spirit, being a bit animated as he writes to his beloved brothers and sisters in Philippi. To hear these words, to speak of somebody as dogs, as an evildoer, we might think that the nerve that has been struck is some personal offense against Paul. For if you're like me, sometimes when you get most heated is when your own ego, your own pride, or the defense of something you love is, is on the line. And so you might think that somebody has just personally attacked Paul, and therefore he feels personally offended or perhaps even jealous of others. But if you read Philippians in context, you know that that can't be the case. 
Because Paul's already addressed this in chapter 1, where there were those who were seeking to take advantage of Paul now being in prison, to have, in a sense, the platform cleared where they could preach Christ. And he says, I know that the motives that they're doing this is, is not pure, but he's able to say in all honesty, what then? Only the Christ is preached. If, if I'm in prison and they're up there getting all of the fame, hey, the gospel's being preached, so, so be it, in a sense. So knowing that that's Paul's heart, I don't think you can come to chapter 3 and say, well, something has happened, Paul's been offended, he's been personally attacked, and now he's calling people names. No, the reason why Paul is animated, the reason why Paul is using such intensely strong words, I believe are for two reasons. One, what is at stake here is a gospel issue. There were certain false teachers going around Philippi saying that the true marks of God's people are not faith and a promise, but actually obedience to the law. In other words, the way that a person is declared righteous is dependent upon their behavior. The way that a person is declared justified before God is dependent upon their obedience to the law of God. Now, if this is true, then what this means is that obedience to the law is therefore a substitute for Jesus, and the promise of the gospel is insufficient. This is what I mean, is it is a gospel issue. And Paul gets to his feet over gospel issues. The second reason I believe this is not personal, but this is something most definitely important, is because the reality of deception amongst the Philippian believers is real. The reality of deception is a very real danger. The deceptiveness of this sort of teaching is more insidious than you might think. It's the sort of thing that creeps into those people who are the religious, who are not the half-hearted, but the devoted, the whole-hearted. It's those who consider themselves to be God-fearing, the sort of people in our context who would say, I love my Bible, I love the Scriptures. Those who live and seek to live for the honor of God's name. You see, the deception that Paul is concerned about here is most damaging because it appears most orthodox. And so Paul has some choice words for those that are corrupting these very issues. And so for these reasons, Paul moves in his letter from the introductory matters. If you read back through it, you'll find out what those are. His, his giving of thanks, his asking for their prayers. He updates them on some issues as to where he's at his exhortation into the manner in which they are living, and now he turns to the heart of the letter, and it's noted off by that word, finally. Now, this is not the trick ploy that pastors often use when they say finally, and they know they really have a half hour's worth more of material. In Paul's language, he's saying finally in the sense of, okay, now for what remains. This is kind of what we've come here for. Let's get down to business in that sense. And what remains in these final three chapters is the issue of joy and the various disruptors or thieves of this joy. Meaning this, if we want to rejoice in the Lord, we then need to be aware of the sort of self-righteous anti-gospel beliefs that are toxins to biblical joy. If you want to know deep an abiding joy, then you need to know the surpassing worth of Christ. And that is where Paul gets to in these 11 verses that will be our consideration this morning. 
for the time that we have, we'll be thinking along these lines. First of all, Paul's concern, getting down to really what the issue is, looking at Paul's confidence, and then finally we'll close by looking at Paul's counting. Concerns, confidence, and counting. Look back at verse 2, which really sums up the issue of Paul's concern. For he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The issue at hand here is this. Who is the people of God? Who are those that God has called to himself? What is it that specifically marks these people out as belonging to God? And that's what is the issue at hand. If we were to pass out paper this morning and ask us all to write down an answer to that question, what would you say? What is it that marks out the people of God? Well, Paul says that the true people of God are those who are marked out as those who worship by the Spirit of God and exalt in Jesus Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh. Now, do we understand what he means when he speaks of no confidence in the flesh? We could spend an entire morning just given to that subject, but in an overview, we could say this. Flesh defines the life of any man, any woman, any child, who is void of, without living, any personal belief in Christ. You essentially are just looking to yourself. This means that fleshly living includes not only those who have sunk to the lowest pits of immorality, which is most often what we think of, isn't it? Paul says it's not just, the flesh is not just these low pits of immorality, but those who also seek to rise to the highest peaks of morality by their own efforts. The people of God are not such people. They worship by spirit, they exalt Christ, they put no confidence in the flesh. You see, without Christ, morality and religious zeal will damn you just as soundly as drunkenness or sexual immorality or murder. They're both forms of fleshly living. But this is directly opposed to what some of the Jewish teachers believed who were boasting, as Paul says, in their flesh. These teachers, as we know, they were called Judaizers. They believed that faith in Jesus as the Messiah was not sufficient for salvation. Yes, listen to the teachings of Jesus, but one also must keep the law of Moses, in particular subject to the law of Moses through the practice of circumcision. So if you want to be right with God, it is Christ plus works. It is Christ plus circumcision. Paul had a few choice words for these teachers. His concern is for the Philippians, and he says, beware, they are dogs. Now, in the eyes of the Jew... Gentiles were dogs. Don't think of 
your little labradoodle at home who's waiting at the door to greet you. Dogs are more of the variety if you travel to a third world country that are borderline between scavengers and just predators. That they roam the streets seeking to fill their bellies to ready to devour anyone or anything that could satisfy their own ends. Beware they are dogs. That is what Paul says. And so, just as these wild animals would do that amongst the streets, these false teachers roamed about looking for opportunities to spread their teachings and consume their victims. Beware they are evildoers. The Jewish teachers love to boast about their good. Paul says, actually, they are overturning the only way to do good and to fulfill the law Namely, through faith in Christ, because they've rejected Christ, they're not do-gooders, they are evildoers. Beware. He says, beware because they're mutilators. These teachers also insisted that circumcision, and that's the sign of the Old Testament covenant, they insisted that circumcision was essential for salvation. If you want to be known as God's people, and if you want to be sure that you are accepted by God, you must fulfill this Old Testament covenant sign. And So here in an obvious play on words in regards to circumcision, Paul says that these lovers of circumcision, they're just mutilators. They're just hacking it up. Beware of them. Now, the concern of Paul ought to remain a present concern for the religiously faithful today. This is an undying danger. We may not have false teachers running around commanding and teaching the same exact things as in the Philippians day, but in principle, the dangers are still here. Beware of the sort of false teaching that it's often smuggled into our zealous efforts to uphold the glory of God, because do not be mistaken, that was at the heart of every Philippian believer who was tempted to be deceived by this teaching, I want to glorify God. Is that not a great ambition? And yet even in that great ambition, there is the danger of being sabotaged with false teaching. Now the concern of Paul is for us this morning, thinking that our efforts, our zeal, our biblical knowledge, our separation from certain patterns or lifestyles that somehow that puts us upon a podium that we can now stand upon, that we can look at and say, surely I am one of God's people because of this. So we're going to see that as one of the most dangerous things that any worshiper of God could ever give into. This sort of thing has such grave consequences that we should treat it like a flesh-eating bacteria. I've known men who have been overtaken by flesh-eating bacteria and their leg, miraculously still living, their leg bears the mark of this sort of biological warfare. This is why Paul would say to Timothy, warning him of such false teachers that their talk will spread like gangrene. That's the sort of attitude that we are to have towards this false teaching. Beware, because it will spread like gangrene. Among them, and he names names, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. This is Paul's concern, that there is a sort of teaching that creeps in among the religiously faithful, God-honoring, Scripture-loving people, and it is deadly. His concern then gives way 
to the, his confidence. He puts this before him and says, beware. And he says, then let me tell you what I am confident in. That's an illustration by way of contrast. Look back at your Bibles down here at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, do you follow Paul's reasoning here? Do you follow his logic here? He's pleading with these Philippians. He's warning them of this anti-gospel teaching. And he does so by saying, look, I have everything that they're boasting in. If you go listen to their messages and the things that they're putting up on the wall as the things that are admirable and that you must pursue after, he says, I have all of it. Let me just list what I could have as far as confidence in the flesh. Everything that they're boasting as godly, I have, and it's actually worthless. That is what he's getting at. Paul, what on earth do you mean? Well, look at what he says here. He says, in regards to circumcision, the thing that they love to boast about, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning that he had been born into a family where the regulations of the Old Testament were kept and studied with great precision. He was not some latecomer to the party who just showed up and jumped on the bandwagon. He says, I can trace this back to my birth. And on the eighth day, I was obedient to the law through the faithfulness of my parents. I have been a participant in this from the earliest point possible. He says, in regards to national identity, that he was a, of the people of Israel by birth. He was a pure and true descendant of Abraham, specifically the tribe of Benjamin. All of this belonged to him by right of birth. It wasn't something he went out and purchased. He didn't immigrate into the nation of Israel. He was an insider among the small band of God-fearing men who kept God's law. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, how about in regards to doctrine? In regards to doctrinal purity, he says, I was a Pharisee. The strictest devotees of the Jewish faith. This was no casual hobby that Paul took up on the weekends. What do the scriptures have to say here? He was devoted to it to this point of zeal that he wore the, the, the brotherhood of Pharisee. How about zeal? Well, in regards to zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. I didn't just write blog posts and have my opinions at weekend parties. I actually went, found, arrested, and assisted in the murder of Christians. That's my zeal. That's what I can boast in. He stood by taking the coats of those who stoned Stephen. He obtained legal authorization to hunt down, arrest, and persecute worshipers of Jesus. No one could question the zeal of Paul. How about in regards to law keeping? He says, I could tell you with an honest conscience that I did it without blame. 
Now, what he means by that is this. There was no glaring omission to his life. It's not as though you looked at the law and said, yeah, but Paul doesn't follow that. If you just looked at the outward observance of the life of, of, of Saul, Paul, you would say that man keeps the law. Now, surely, if you had all of this, you would have something to be proud of. Surely, if you had all of that, you could think, I have some sort of confidence before God that surely God hears me. That because of all this, there's some sort of advantage that I have in my worship of God. And as you hear that, I'm willing to bet that you know the answer to that is no. Not at all. Because you're well taught, and I'm willing to bet that most all of you know the gospel and know your Bibles, and you could sniff that out and say, no, that is a lie. That doesn't get you any standing before God. And though, brothers and sisters, though we know that is the right answer, how often are we tempted to believe that something other than Christ himself is our confidence? How willing and how often do we believe that our position, our favor with God is somehow attributed to something that we do or are not doing. The reason that you are suddenly compelled to lift your hands and worship because you are so confident in the week that you have had, or because you bow your head in shame because you are so embarrassed of the week that you have had, and surely I could never approach God this morning, either case is a trusting in their own flesh. It's creepy. It sneaks in all the time. This is why Paul would say in Romans 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. And that is Paul's point. If we are looking to our behavior as the evidence of right standing before God, then we will be constantly and eternally deceived. If right now I were to ask you, what is your confidence that God accepts you and welcomes you as his own? If your thoughts and your answer turn to something that you have done or are doing or want to do better, you run the risk of being deceived because the only answer that we can ever put in that blank that gives us any measure of confidence is Christ himself. This is why this is such a deadly deception because it preys upon those who want to please God, who want to glorify him. Paul's confidence was nothing of what the Judaizers said, trust in this. So we go from his concern to his confidence. We need to look at what Paul actually then counted upon. What did Paul count? Look down at your Bibles now at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, being like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Have you ever sat down to take stock of a certain situation in your life, listed out all the positives, all the negatives? Whether it was a decision that you had to make or just weighing an investment of time or money, that you just sat down and began to put things into categories. Is this help or is this hurt? Is this a gain or is this a loss? In pleading with the Philippian church, Paul wants them to know that everything that the Judaizers praised, everything that Paul himself once put confidence in, was now considered a loss. It was in the loss column. He considered it detrimental to his own life. But then in truly counting all the actual losses in working through that, what Paul says, what I actually found is I did find gain. There was something that I could say that is gain. Notice how Paul puts this. In a sense, he says, things aren't always as what they appear. He says, supposed gains are actual losses, and supposed losses are actual gains. That is the heart of what he's after here. Consider this. Supposed gains, the Judaizers are teaching, are actual losses. When Paul says in verse 7, when he speaks of gain, notice with me that it's plural. You may not see that immediately in your English translation, but when Paul speaks of gain, it is plural, meaning that he's put everything in verses 4 to 7. Keep this in context. Everything in verses 4 to 7 in one column, and he lets his eyes run through that list of all of those things that he could boast in, those supposed advantages, discovering the total sum at the bottom of all of that is actually a bold, red, negative balance. It's a loss. Everything that I could trust in in my flesh, it's actually a debt. It's a loss. Everything you assumed was a religious advantage was actually a lead balloon when it comes to truly knowing Christ. Supposed, supposed gains or actual losses. Now, there is a great sinking feeling when you take inventory of your financial status and discover that through the entire month that you thought you were sufficiently funded and most certainly positive, only to find that you are severely overdrawn. That gut, that sinking feeling in your gut, when, when that happens and you realize, oh, no, I don't have what's needed to cover what's out there. Now, how much more tragic is to spend your entire life assuming that various religious zeal or energy or knowledge was something only to find at the end of your life, standing before God, you are in unfathomable debt. That's why Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount are so haunting. In Matthew 7, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, why does Paul consider all these supposed examples of religious confidence to actually be losses? Well, who needs Christ when you have all of these advantages? Think about it. They are replacements for Christ himself. And if any of these religious advantages are replacements for Christ himself, then at the end of the day, you are in debt because you do not have Christ. Think about how this would work out on a very practical level. Who needs an advocate when you have all of your religious and moral resume to speak on your behalf? Just look at what I've accomplished. Oh, thank you, Christ, for showing up to, on my behalf as well. But I think you'll notice from my resume that, that I have a pretty impeccable record. Who needs an advocate when you have that sort of resume that you're trusting in? Who is desperate for a Savior when you are convinced that your adherence to the law is exemplary? Who thinks they need a teacher when they are, of course, amongst the doctrinally sound? You see, all of these supposed gains or losses because you say, Christ, sit down, I've got this. And that is a loss. This is why self-righteous, moralistic, driven living is a loss. It's anti-Christ. And Paul could look at all of his zeal. He could look at all of his religious knowledge and legal adherence and say, brothers, it is a loss. It's actually detrimental to knowing Christ. But at the same time, supposed losses, he says, are actual gains. What you would think according to the teaching of the Judaizers, would be this horrible loss, he says, I'm here to tell you, is the most wonderful gain. This is what he says towards the end of verse 8. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. For the sake of Christ, Paul could say that he suffered the loss of all his confidences. Again, everything that was listed in 4 through 7. He suffered the loss of all of his confidences in the flesh, considering them to be rubbish, to be dung. So that the only item that remained at the end of that gain column was one word, Christ. He says, I have taken all of these things that were supposed gains, I've put them in the loss column and considered them not only losses, but treated them as rubbish as dung, and what I have found and what remains after sorting through all of that is that I have a gain and that it is Christ himself. Church, be sure you cannot have Christ until you take all of the Christ substitutes and fling them from you like dung or refuse. If we continue to hold on to them and somehow treasure them or just keep them with us, thinking that surely this is what I will need to have the confidence to, to remind myself that I'm a good and faithful Christian, God-honoring, loving the Scriptures, if I just look to this, if it's anything in that list that's a substitute for Christ, you are holding on to dung. And Christ said, Paul says, once I recognize that, throwing that away, losing all of that in order that I might 
actually gain Christ. What I found is that my supposed losses, brothers and sisters, are, are actually the most tremendous gain that anyone could ever know. But let's be clear, what do we actually gain? Yes, we gain Christ. But what does it mean to, to actually gain Christ? What does it mean to be united to him? What does it mean to be a Christian? Paul says, well, let me tell you. He says, when we gain Christ, in verse 9, we gain justification. That's the short word for what Paul is describing there. When we gain Christ, we gain justification. This is the heart of the issue. What qualifies you and I to stand before God as acceptable is this matter of justification. Paul says that when he gained Christ, he now had a righteousness that did not come from him, that did not come from his adherence to the law, but it came through faith in Christ. Now, this is of such tremendous importance for us today. Modern people in our world, and particularly in our American culture, believe that the problem with the world and with one another is something that is, that is outside of us. What is wrong with this world is something, and then you point to something over there, or over there, or over there. And what we then conclude is that in order to be saved from that problem, we need to look inside for rescue. This is the foundation of modern, moralistic, therapeutic worldview, and it is the assumption of nearly everyone in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and in your Facebook feed. Something happened to me, and I need help. This is what nearly every person in our world assumes. And so I've got to look within for that help. For some, it's saying, I, I just need wisdom. And so what is going to save us and save our culture is education. If they just understood the issues that would solve their ignorance, then the problems that are affecting us would be eliminated. Just look within. You need more knowledge. Or some will say, well, what actually we need is you just need to look within to a new level of consciousness. You need this spiritual help. You need this self-help. You need to think differently. You need to think these sort of thoughts about yourself. And if you think in this way, it's going to come back to you. You're just looking within to solve an apparent problem that is without. Or I've just got to immerse myself in some form of self-improvement. I've got to take care of me so that I can take care of the problems out there. Brothers and sisters, this is anti-gospel. Instead, what Scripture reveals is that the problem is not outside of us. It's not ultimately out there or over there or with them. The ultimate problem is inside of us. It is the corruption of our sin, and it's, it's, the, the salvation is not going to come from inside of us. The only solution, the only salvation is going to come from without, and this is why Luther called it an alien righteousness. It's not some form of righteousness that we drum up, whether it's higher consciousness or more education or better self-help. It is something that is foreign that comes to us. And Luther called it alien righteousness because Paul himself said this. This righteousness comes from God. It is his own righteousness. Think of that. 
It is His holiness. The same holiness that angels bow before, covering their faces saying, Holy, holy, holy. God's righteousness, His perfection, His holiness. This is the very doctrine that lit up the Reformation and the rediscovery of the gospel and continues today. You see, Christianity is not a collaborative process. It's not some process where God infuses grace into us to help us become more righteous people so that at the end of your life, after all of these good works, God could look at you and say, justified. That is not the teaching of Scripture. The gospel declares that God gives sinners righteousness. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to them and he announces justified, forgiven, cleansed, accepted. This sort of righteousness is from God and as a result, this sort of righteousness, Paul says, comes through faith and depends on faith. Do you see how contrary this is to what the Judaizers were teaching? It's not through what you are doing, it comes by faith. It's God's righteousness, and it comes to you by faith, and it depends upon faith. Why? The only way that you and I will ever know this righteousness is by faith in a promise. God makes a promise, and we say, I'm going to trust that promise. That's how you and I receive the righteousness of God, by faith and a promise. A promise that says Christ has satisfied all the demands of the law. Whatever God demands of his people, Christ has accomplished it. I'm going to have faith in that promise. It's a promise that says Christ has satisfied all the payment for sin, that his death sufficiently satisfies the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God against sin because of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection. I'm going to have faith in that promise. The sort of righteousness comes to a person by faith. The right response to such an announcement is repent and believe. And that is the pattern of Scripture. Agree with God. Agree with God about what He says about you. And agree with God about what He says about Himself. That we are sinners that he is righteous, that he provides for sinners through the righteousness of his own son. It is not dependent upon works, lest any man should boast. It comes by faith. That's why Paul would write in Romans 3, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. When we gain Christ, we gain justification. But what else, Paul? Well, when we gain Christ, verse 10, we also gain sanctification. This is the summary of what Paul says there in verse 10. When we gain Christ... We know Christ, and in knowing Christ, we become like Christ. That is the process of sanctification, being conformed into Christ's image. Do you ever notice how you become like your friends? Maybe you don't notice it at first, but you end up adopting their speech patterns. You end up picking up their mannerisms, 
over time, oddly, you like the same sort of things they like, and you're disgusted by the same sort of things that they're annoyed by. You become like your friends. And it is no different, and the sweetest friendship of all, when we are united to Christ. Paul says, I would gladly suffer the loss of all fleshly confidence to be further conformed, that I might gain Christ, to be conformed to him, becoming like him in his death. Here's what you must not miss. If you want to change, if you desperately want to know this experience of becoming more like Christ, to defeat sin, to break free of its bondage, you cannot do it by attempting to keep the law. If you want to quit lusting, you cannot change by working harder to not commit adultery. If you want to quit yelling at your wife or your kids, you cannot change by working harder to not murder. If you want to quit some particular addiction, you cannot change by working harder having no other gods before him. You see, the law is nothing more than this divinely built x-ray machine or CT scan. That it is invaluable at, at revealing our great malady, our deepest malady, but it is completely powerless to change us. Is that not the experience when you go in and you see the film up on the wall, backlit by that brilliantly white light, plainly, coldly, without any sort of hesitation saying, this is what's wrong with you. And yet, how foolish would it be to look to that same image, to look to that same x-ray or CT scan and say, fix me. It says, I don't fix. I just point out what's really there. I just show you the exact truth of what's going on. The exact truth that you might not even have known. And it does it perfectly. That is the law of God. It is perfect in pointing out who we really are. By God's own design, it is held up before us and says, this is what is wrong with you right here. But how foolish it would be to look to that law and say, fix me. That is not at all what God has intended. Conformity to Christ only comes through union with Christ. That is how we change. To know Christ is to be conformed to his image. It's to like our friends, begin to hate what he hates, to love what he loves, to speak of what he delights in. If you've ever known any sort of transformation, or excuse me, if you have never known any sort of transformation, it is possible that you do not know Christ. It is possible that you are looking to the law to change what is wrong with you. And it is the great joy of the Christian experience to not only know of this Christ and head knowledge, but to know of him as you're conformed to his image and you begin to see his reflection reflected back in your own life. It is the great joy of Christian living. And we would plead with you, if that is the case, we would plead with you saying, look to Christ, not to the law. Look to the promises that God himself has given in Christ, saying, I must know Christ. I must know him. I must be changed by him. 
So just how do we know if this, is, this conformity is really happening in our lives? Is there any confidence that we can say, am I being conformed to the image of Christ? Well, I think it's no coincidence that Paul's yardstick for conformity here in verse 10 is what? Paul's yardstick for conformity is being conformed to the image of Christ in his death. This is completely fitting with everything that Paul's been saying in the language of Philippians. Because if you go back to chapter 2, the very essence of this letter is that in humility you would count others more significant than yourselves. He also says in chapter 2 that a Christian is one who looks not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others as they take the form of a servant because they have the mind of Christ after his own pattern. You see, conformity to Christ, sanctification, that's what we're talking about. Conformity to Christ looks like a growing and greater submission to the Father that is made clear through what God has revealed in his word. If you want to know if you are growing in the image of Christ, you simply look at your life and say, am I growing in my desire and my ability to want what God wants, to love what he loves? And that is defined by what we see in Scripture itself. You see, sanctification is not some mystical or subjective feeling about God. It's actually very objective in that sense that it's very visible. That is, we are willing to take up our cross and say, not my own interest, but yours. Being conformed to the image of his death as we gladly love and serve others in submission to the Father. When we gain Christ, we gain justification. We gain sanctification, but Paul's not done. He says in verse 11, we also gain the hope of glorification. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what we gain when we gain Christ. As he says there, that by any means I may, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The end result of fellowship with Christ is that we obtain Resurrection and death. Think of that. Because of the surpassing worth of Christ, Paul said that he would walk away from any path. Any path that promoted his comfort, any path that promoted him as surely a religious teacher, any path that would have preserved his life, he said, I'll walk away from all of that. He said, I will walk away or towards any hardship, I'll travel to any city, if the end of the story means resurrection from death. Think of how much that shifts your willingness, your desires, what you'll endure, what sort of cost that you will gladly pay. If the end of that means resurrection with Christ, let's go. Jim Elliott, as you probably know, as a young college student wrote in his journal these words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Seems like a very trite saying for a 20-something-year-old man to write in a journal during his college years, but God in his providence and faithfulness would cause that to be borne out in Jim's own life when just a few years later he would give his life on the beaches of Central America for propagation and the furtherance of the gospel. Several years after Jim wrote this in his journal, he would experience the sacrifice of his own life and the anticipation of resurrection 
from death. To gain Christ is to gain the hope of resurrection. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the last trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is only a person who has gained Christ in the hope of glorification could ever say that labors are not in vain, even in the midst of sickness death and loss and apparent defeat. The Christian gains all of this. Now, if we were to summarize everything that Paul is saying, I think it might sound like this. I want to know Christ, even if it means suffering for him, even if it means walking away from what I've built my life upon, for it's my all-consuming passion to know him. It's not simply enough to be thought of as religious by other people. I must know Christ and his righteousness. I want to know Christ more than being thought of as a religious person. That is a searching statement. This then is the real concern. If you care more about being thought of as a good person than actually knowing Christ, you should be alarmed. If you give more effort to covering up your internet history or your texting conversations than you do searching out your own heart and repenting of sin, you should be alarmed. If you give more energy to maintaining others' opinions about you than your affection for Christ, you should be alarmed. If you are more concerned to toe the line when your parents, spouse, or kids are present rather than when you are alone, you should be alarmed. Because all of those are simply the fruits of someone who loves the appearance of looking godly rather than knowing God himself. And it is something that is woven into the corruption of our own hearts and we must fight against until the day that we die. For this obsession of visible and outward righteousness is not the righteousness that comes from Christ. It's just of our own efforts. But the gospel of God holds forth a righteousness that cannot be tarnished. It cannot be lost. It cannot be diminished because, again, it's the righteousness of God himself. And whatever God gives is eternal and perfect and satisfying because it is of himself. It covers every sin. 
His righteousness secures his own favor. This gain marks us out for all eternity as God's favored heirs. So church, we then are a people who who have great confidence, not in ourselves, but our great confidence in this God who has made a promise and secured it for us in Christ. So can we say with Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. If not, and if so, then our prayer ought to be the same. God, show me more of the worth of Christ that I might speak like this. That's a worthy prayer to pray. So on the basis of all of this in which God has said, let's look to him now in prayer. Father, it is your word that our confidence and our hope rests upon nothing within our own selves, even though how daily and hourly we are tempted to try and do so. Lord, what we need is the righteousness that belongs to you, that's given to us in your son. And what we so often try and present to you is some tattered form of our own righteousness and our own attempts to please you and stand upon some platform that we have built. And so, Father, we pray that you would cause the surpassing worth of Christ to be made plain before our eyes this morning, that we would be those who respond to the promise, repent of sin, trusting in what you have given, and confident of your faithfulness to preserve us to the end. And until that day, Lord, we anticipate when we, with resurrected bodies, will stand before you and we will shout, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? That the strength of sin is the law, but that Christ, you have perfectly fulfilled the law. You satisfied all its demands, and you have borne the the punishment that we deserve for it. Father, we pray by the work of your Spirit, would you cause these truths to bear such tremendous and eternal fruit in our lives. For Christ's sake and his glory, amen.